hppodcraft.com. He was dead. The head of a high tribunal. The upright magistrate whose irreproachable life was a proverb in all the courts of France. Advocates, young counselors, judges had greeted him at sight of his large, thin, pale face, lighted up by two sparkling, deep-set eyes, bowing low in token of respect. He had passed his life in pursuing crime and in protecting the weak. Swindlers and murderers had no more redoubtable enemy, for he seemed to read the most secret thoughts of their minds. He was dead now at the age of eighty-two, honored by the homage and followed by the regrets of a whole people. Soldiers in red trousers had escorted him to the tomb, and men in white cravats had spoken words and shed tears that seemed to be sincere beside his grave. But here is the strange paper found by the dismayed notary in the desk where he had kept the records of great criminals. It was entitled, Why? I hate to tell you this, but we're going to be the ones to tell you why here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you are listening to us at hppodcraft.com. And I think that reader's familiar to most folks who have listened to the show before. Andrew Lehman. That is Mr. Andrew Lehman. Uh, haven't heard from him for a while, so we thought we'd have him back. And, you know, he's got all kinds of things going on over at the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. Oh, yeah. They just released their kicking, rocking rock opera, mm-hmm. Dreams of the Witch House. Have you listened to it? Oh, I have. It shreds. Dude. It's, it's pretty, awesome. It's pretty great, man. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> not even like a, a style of music that I'm really, really into, but it's, no. it's like beautiful to listen to. I've, I've thrown it on lots of times. They also just released another Dark Adventure radio theater. Uh, yes, the reanimator. Herbert West reanimator. I saw on the uh, the cover of it, he's a, he's a blonde. He is a blonde, toe-headed. They have adapted it faithfully. <laughs> well, this is uh, Demompasember. Demompasember, yes. <laughs> Somebody wrote it and called it that. I thought, why didn't we think of that? Yes. Uh, we're covering Guy de Maupassant stories, and we decided to kick it off with Diary of a Madman. Now, because these are all translations, sometimes these things are hard to find, these stories. This is actually yes. also known as a madman. It's not always Diary of a Madman. Mm-hmm. There's a Russian a short story called Diary of a Madman by Gogol that is maybe more famous than this, but this often goes by a madman. There's also a story that we're going to cover this month called The Spectre, and I had such a hard time finding it, and it's because it's also translated as The Apparition. Yeah. And The White Wolf is another story we're going to cover this month. It's also called The Wolf. The Wolf, right. Yeah. So that's the funny thing about doing all of these translated stories is we can't really criticize the language as we read it. You know, we can't really talk specifically about the turns of phrase because they've been translated from the French. Right. Although I do think it shows, you know, Maupassant is so good at constructing, you know, sentence upon sentence in such an impactful way. Yeah. That even in the translation, I think his stuff is so effective. I agree. I mean, I think it's amazing that somebody's work can translate, that it's not dependent on the actual phraseology or the the words that are being used. Right. But the ideas and maybe the pacing of it, how much time they spend on descriptions or how quickly they just move the story along. I'm curious if we have any listeners out there that are foreign language speakers that have read Lovecraft and read translations of his work and mm-hmm. and how that Obviously, if you're listening to the show, you can speak English, but how those translations work compared to his original writings. Yeah, I always wonder that because the way that he writes is so unique and 
flowery, and mm-hmm. I just wonder how that gets captured in, in other languages. But Guy de Maupassant seems to be working out well in English. He wrote more than 300 short stories. Yeah. And uh, a lot of folks in that period between, I think it was 1880 and 1890, before he went mm-hmm. nuts, people say he's probably the best short story writer there is. But anyway, this short story, uh, Diary of a Madman, the story kind of upset me, man. It's pretty disturbing. And t- just to warn everybody to begin with, it's not a weird story at all, and, and there's nothing supernatural about it. Lovecraft says in Supernatural Horror and Literature, when he lists uh, these stories that we're going to cover, he says, other potently dark creations of mm-hmm. Demo Passant. So yeah. they're not necessarily supernatural or weird. They're just dark and good. Well, I think one of the ones that we're going to cover soon is about some furniture disappearing or something. It's definitely more along the lines of the Horla in that it may be supernatural, but right. this one is just uh, dark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's this judge who everybody loves, or at least everybody respects. He's a very big man about town. I mean, people really look up to him, and he's just passed away, and his clerk finds this series of papers in his desk. Mm -hmm. Here's the first entry. 20th June, 1851. I have just left court. I have condemned Blondel to death. Now why did this man kill his five children? Frequently one meets with people to whom the destruction of life is a pleasure. Yes... Yes, it should be a pleasure, the greatest of all, perhaps, for is not killing the next thing to creating, to make and to destroy? These two words contain the history of the universe, all the history of worlds, all that is, all. Why is it not intoxicating to kill? You know, once I read that, I thought, I I think I have a pretty good idea where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But but I was, I'm, yeah. I decided once I started reading it that I was going to really think about these ideas because, of course, it's a diary of a madman. So you already know that you're going to be getting some crazy stuff. But I started to think about killing and and creating. Are those a parallel? Are those equal in some way? And Mm -hmm. I don't don't think so. I think that they're, they're very different. I think life is so much more about creation and it takes so much effort, whereas killing somebody is pretty easy to do mm, and that's yeah. the, that's the same with anything like building a building that's really hard destroying a building not so hard <laughs> you know like a, yeah like a bomb you know like one well-placed bomb will take a building out takes dozens and dozens of people months and months of time to make something anything any real creation is time-consuming effort but destruction always or usually is something that can happen quite swiftly mm. and with little effort. I, I mean, obviously killing or destruction is necessary as a part of nature. It's His premise is that shouldn't one take pleasure in killing? Because it's so near to creation, isn't it just natural to find it pleasurable? No. And I'm just like, no, man, I can't even, it's abhorrent to even think about, which I guess is how he's hooking you right away. You know? Exactly. But there's a, there's a lot there, too, because this judge has just put somebody to death, and this is something that he does quite frequently. So this story, I think, is about these ideas, but it's also about what can happen when somebody is put in a position of authority over other human beings. Right. Perhaps for too long. And maybe there's more of this kind of thing going on than we think. <laughs> you know, I think that's the really scary implication of the story. But but let's not get ahead of ourselves. He says in the next entry that life is nothing, really. Yeah. You just kind of, it's a, it's a grain. It's just a, a speck. It's a, a piece of sand. It's, n- it's nothing. And, and so his premise then is, why would it be a crime 
if it's we're just specks, we're nothing after we're gone. It's isn't it the law of nature? I mean, when I was reading this, I'm like, some of the things he's saying do make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the mission of every being is to kill. He kills to live and he kills to kill. The beast kills without ceasing all day, every instant of his existence. It made me think of that onion t-shirt that's got a picture of a kitten on it. And it says kitten thinks of murder all day. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're going to be honest, that's actually what's going on in the little cat's head. You know, I mean, yeah. they, they play because they're simulating the hunt. And even if they're well fed, they'll still kill things. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's but that's cats. That's not necessarily people. That's not people, but as a boy, I think I probably massacred entire gene pools of insects, to be completely honest. I mean, I had a a laboratory going (laughs) where I was, you know, seeing what different chemicals would do to different bugs. It's just something that came to me naturally to do. Now, I never went above that. You know, I never found any pleasure in uh, hurting animals. No, I believe you. Didn't you once? I think you even talked about on the show that you you shot a was it a ground squirrel? Yeah, I shot a ground squirrel. Made me feel real bad. Devastated you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm no hunter. I mean, I I, let's I I I eat meat, you know, so I I come to terms with that. I would kill the things that I eat, you know, but it's certainly not something I would take any pleasure in. And people on farms don't necessarily take pleasure in doing that to the cattle that they raise. Yeah. Uh, it's a necessity in life. So, again, his idea that to kill for pleasure is is natural, I don't know if I agree with. But he does have a point that we hunt to kill things for fun. Yeah, well, some some of us do. Some of us do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's most people aren't hunters and most people don't kill. I mean, if you look at statistics and, and I remember reading about World War II where only, uh, was it 25% of the people actually shot at other people? Oh right! Like they would they would pretend to shoot at other people because they, they, it's so ingrained in people not to hurt other people. They would rather die, be shot mm-hmm. at, and killed than have to kill another person, even if that person's trying to kill them. Yeah, um, and it's not wasn't until much later in later wars where they figured out, oh, we've got instead of having target practice, we need to have people shooting at images of people and get them used to the idea of killing people before we send them out on the battlefield. Right. Most people aren't violent. Most people are pacifists to a degree. I mean, people will fight if they have to, but most people, it's, we live in a society that's dependent on trust. And if you can't trust people, then you're going to cause problems. You'll go to jail. Society works because people aren't inherently violent. But he does have this thing he says, we cannot live without yielding to this natural and imperious instinct of death. And so we relieve ourselves from time to time by wars when a whole nation slaughters another nation. It was making me think perhaps people are pacifists to a degree or they're not actively violent. But there is some propensity in humans to witness violence, I think. I, There's I, some need, I think, some somewhere along the lines. You know, he says it satis- used to be satisfied by human sacrifices. But now that murder is a crime because of social reasons, people are going to find other ways to get it out. I think that violence is not the end. It's a means to an end. As in, there's a a desire for dominance or there's a desire for proving one's worth. And I think that fighting was a way to do that. Mm-hmm. But in our modern age, that that's less so. People aren't as impressed by somebody being able to fight or kill somebody else. But I still think mm-hmm. that there's that that's part of that in our nationality. Like if America goes to a war, you want America to win that war. Right. It's about just being right or it's your side or your clan or your group of people that are successful. 
that are surviving. Well, I was thinking more in terms of um, of witnessing like bloodlust. For example, they used to say, I don't know if this is true or not, but there were so many violent movies in the 80s. Yeah. You know, it was like you you'd go see these movies and they were just slasher films really came sure. to age in the 70s and the 80s. And people would say, why are people interested in seeing these films? And it's like, well, we were in the middle of a Cold War where you weren't living that, you know. Right after World War II, if you look at what was in pop entertainment, it's all very bright and shiny and wholesome. And, right. and I think that was a reaction to just the horrible things that people had to witness in the world right, uh, right up previous to that. But here you have a, a couple of generations of folks who haven't had to go to war and who haven't really witnessed that in their lives. And are they getting their bloodlust satisfied through entertainment? Like, for example, I don't understand why every show on television is about murder, but it's pretty much true. Like in America, at least. <laughs> yeah. It's CSI's Law and Order and all these. I can't believe they won't show naked boobs on TV, but the stuff that they show. Oh, I know. In prime time, the charred dead bodies, they'll pull like a dildo oh, yeah. out of it. You know, <laughs> I saw a, a guy got decapitated on a TV show I was watching, you know, like the guy's yeah. head just went flying right off. And I was like, you what? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really bother me. I'm not super uh, square or anything. It doesn't really bother me that much. But like, what is it satisfying for people? I mean, why are they so obsessed with horrible murders? Slasher films appeal to fear. And I think uh, everybody is afraid of things like that happening in the back yeah. of your Like, I've run through those scenarios in my head that what if somebody comes after me and tries to kill me or mm -hmm. kill somebody that I love? And that frightens me. And that fear is exciting because you get your adrenaline from that. So, right, right. But I don't know if it's necessarily bloodlust. Like, you can get that adrenaline rush through watching those movies. But if you see some actual violent act happen, you'll get also get an ad ad adrenaline rush, but you'll feel really bad about it if you're a normal yes. human being. Right. And there are consequences to that where that person has to go to the hospital. Maybe that person's dead. If that person's dead, their family, you know, their, their, their children, all these people, sure. it just has all these repercussions. But there's a safety in it when you watch it in a movie. Yeah. That you can get that little bit of adrenaline rush and not have any consequences. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, man. I, there's there's a certain voyeurism to it, I guess, that is hard for me to decode why it's just so, yeah. you know, like the CSI shows, there's a lot of just gratuitous. It's not somebody being, you don't actually watch the murder even happen. They just find the body and then they take it apart and then they show you all the blood and guts. Mm -hmm. And people tune in for that. Old people tune in for that, you know. Sure. <laughs> it's like, they just love it. So I don't know. There must be. There's a little kernel of truth to the things he says, but there's also a lot to say against it. Mm -hmm. Now, in talking about those who do a lot of killing, he goes on to say this in the journal. One might suppose that those destined to accomplish these butcheries of men would be despised. No, they are loaded with honors. They are clad in gold and in resplendent garments. They wear plumes on their heads and ornaments on their breasts, and they are given crosses, rewards, titles of every kind. They are proud, respected, loved by women, cheered by the crowd solely because their mission is to shed human blood. They drag through the streets their instruments of death that the passerby clad in black looks on with envy. For to kill is the great law set by nature in the heart of existence. There is nothing more beautiful and honorable than killing. 30th June. To kill is the law because nature loves eternal youth. She seems to cry in all her unconscious acts. Quick, quick, quick! The more she destroys, 
the more she renews herself. Two topics there, really. Yeah. I kind of agreed with something that he's saying there, Mm -hmm. which is that when people are able to sort of kill... The coolest thing about James Bond is that he's got a license to kill. He can just do it. And that's what makes him cool. He can get away with it and he can kill anybody he wants to. Well, but here's the thing. It's James Bond, so he's not going to just go kill willy-nilly. He's going to kill people that have to be killed. Oh uh, yeah, because it's James Bond and you know that <laughs> Yeah, he's a good That's guy. true. He's a good like, guy. Like you don't want to yeah. give Charles Manson a license to kill. No, you don't want to do that. But James Bond, you know, he's going to do the right thing with it. But the leaders of nations order deaths all the time. Sure. And get away with some wrongful deaths. The people that we that are most powerful, you know, they got bodies on them is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, true. And they got to take responsibility for that. Yeah, you don't rise to a position of power without probably being responsible for a death. But it's pretty uh, you know. it's pretty insane when you think I mean the wars now are surgical compared to yes. I mean World War II like the the fire bombings of Tokyo that happened killed upwards right. of 80,000 right. 100,000 something like that and those weren't military targets necessarily those were civilians that were getting it now it's like a few dozen innocent people die comparatively that's an improvement. It's not perfect, but it's it's better. I, I think that it's unfortunate anybody gets killed, obviously. But his point is that there's a lot of people who do a lot of killing who are celebrated. Yeah, but I don't think it's they're celebrated because of their killing. And that's what he's saying in that paragraph. They're killers and that's why they're being celebrated. It's like, no, I'm going to go back to my original statement in saying that they're representatives of the clan or the group or the country. Right. And they are able to demonstrate their power by defeating other people, not necessarily killing them. Like if they go into a country and the country surrenders, then they, that's still a victory. But his other his other point here in the 30th of June is that uh, nature loves eternal youth and that the more she destroys, the more she renews herself. That, that's got some truth to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, he goes on in these journal entries to talk about humans and human beings mm-hmm. and how he feels about them. This is a little strange. I mean, what's he talking about here? Well, he says, um, this is his quote. He goes, what is a human being? Through thought, it is a reflection of all that is. Through memory and science, it is an abridged edition of the universe whose history it represents. A mirror of things and of nations, each human being becomes a microcosm in the macrocosm. I think he's being a little nuts here. I don't think that... <laughs> I don't think I don't think in a human being you really get any of those things. Humans are just a part of a, of a much greater whole. And looking at one individual human, you're not going to get much. Yeah, I, I agree. I was like, wait, I don't think that I'm a microcosm of everything that's come before. We're such a small percentage of the experience of Earth, let alone the universe. Yeah. Like humans have only been around for like as human humans, was it 100,000 years? Something like that. 100,000. Let's just say 100,000. Yeah. But the planet is billions of years old. <laughs> right. So it's just ridiculous to think that we're this representation of not just the planet, but of Mm -hmm. the universe, he says. Mm -hmm. The sum of the universe can be broken down into us. And that's just flipping ridiculous, man. Like the universe is so big. And this is one of those things that that always drives me crazy because people like to think that we're so important to the universe. And Lovecraft, of course, says, no, we're not. And you just think, think about things. I was thinking about the moon always blows me away because I tell people how far away it is and they just go, oh, yeah, that's far. And then that's it. That's all they say. I'm like, no, you don't really understand how far away. The moon, which is our closest stellar body, is about 238,000 miles away. Okay. Now, that's a big number. What does that mean? Okay. But so I, I put, put this in perspective. All right. If you had a road, a road that you can drive on to the moon and you're going to drive to the moon. Yeah. 2,383 miles. Say you're going 60 miles an hour. Yeah. 
How long do you think that would take? I, I assume it would take five months. And that's not stopping. That's like mm -hmm. if you've got two people and you keep driving, you're not stopping and getting gas. Let's say that you're sleeping and you're taking breaks and stuff yeah. on this journey. So Can I just up, pee out the window or? You can pee out the window, but it's reasonable. I have a small reasonable. You're okay. going to stop at the hotel on the way okay. to the moon, okay? Right. So if you're going to do that and sleep like eight hours a day, that's going to take you eight months <clears throat> to drive to the moon. Eight months. You're just trying to talk me out of this moon road idea I've had, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm but, building it. But if you think about like, I mean, I've driven cross country before and mm -hmm. I, man, that's freaking far. That is yeah. big. And that took me three days, four days. We kind of took it, you know, took, took it easy when we did it. This is, this is months and this is the moon, which is orbiting our planet. Okay. That's yeah. not even like the next biggest, the, I'm, oh God. And like <laughs> the sun it takes eight minutes at the speed of light to get to the sun. Like, well, then maybe it's, it's not that big of a deal to kill somebody then. Maybe, maybe I'm proving the madman's point. Third July. It must be a pleasure, unique and full of zest, to kill. To have there before one the living, thinking being. To make therein a little hole. Nothing but a little hole. To see that red thing flow, which is the blood which makes life, and to have before one only a heap of limp flesh, cold, inert, void of thought. Uh, yeah, I still don't want to kill anybody. It's so upsetting. I mean, of course, it, and that's the point of this story, is to yeah. upset you to think about that and go, oh my God, that's horrible, because it's true. It, that little yeah. hole can easily kill somebody. I mean, I've never killed or hunted or anything like that. All the energy that went into making that thing, or this person, let's talk about murder. Let's forget about animals. Yeah. When you murder a person, all, like, I've got a little boy, and to think of just the amount of energy and time that I've spent into him, and the emotion, my emotional yeah. investment, and, and he's just a little boy, like, when a lifetime, a man, when he becomes a man, and he's got all these experience and all these people that have contributed to who he is and what he is, to think that somebody can just, you know, quickly poke him in the throat and then it's over yeah that's horrific to me and I've, of course, i mean that's what's great about this story is that it makes you think about those things and how somebody could look at that and think oh it's nothing now i've got this limp body isn't that great that i've just taken all that away from him and it's like i don't think it's great at all i think it's really pathetic and and weak that that's what you get that's what you get your pleasure from that's not yeah. It, it, it makes me sad more than um, angry. Well, you know, uh, it's funny. I see that you made a note here about the shield because I thought the exact oh, right. same thing. On the shield, uh, Dutch, that character was, there was a serial killer who was saying, oh, it's the best feeling. I mean, taking yeah. the life from something is a great feeling. And the cop, his name was Dutch, who was investigating it, there was a cat that was bothering him. Yeah. And so he killed the cat. He just picked it up and he choked it because he yeah. wanted to know what does it feel like. And the actor, I, I can't think of his name offhand, but he's such a good actor. You see it happen in his face where he's like, no, I didn't feel anything from doing that. He just feels sad for having done it. Yeah. He has a normal human reaction Yeah, to it. That's a great bit. That stuck with me. I mean, that show yeah. was really cool, but that one bit was just really resonated. And it was like, wow, that is heavy life stuff going on on that show. But we're talking about, we're talking about uh, Diary of the Madman here. We are. So he uh, transitions, you know, all of this is just sort of speculation. But then he starts to say, you know, I've, passed, I've spent my whole life killing by ordering deaths by the guillotine. I bet I could 
Who would know it if I were to actually kill somebody like the people I've put to death do with a knife? Especially if I choose a being I had no interest in doing away with. How would anybody ever catch me? Yeah. And that that's chilling because it's kind of true. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember having this conversation as teenagers. You know, what would you how could you commit the perfect murder? I have no idea why we're sitting around talking about that. But because <laughs> it's a cool thing to talk about. When well, you're a the teenager. conclusion was always it had to be somebody that you had no motive, you know, complete stranger. Yeah. Or if it was somebody that you had a motive for, you'd have to kill a lot of people so that nobody could know who you were after or whatever, you know. Right. But it, but if there's no connection, then it's much more difficult to catch. And the truth is, sadly, as we were discussing before we started recording here, most murders, they ain't getting solved. Yeah, that's um, I did some looking into this in the in the U.S. It's pretty bad. In the 60s, it was good. Ninety percent of all murders were solved mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, they convicted somebody, whether or not those people actually did it or not. Remains yeah. to be seen. But now the average is 65 percent of murders are solved. Thirty five percent of murders remain unsolved. Now, it, it depends also where you go, because in 2008, uh, police solved only 35 percent of the homicides in Chicago. Oh. 22% in New Orleans, 21% in Detroit. Oh, poor, man. Poor Detroit. But other places like Philadelphia, 75%, mm-hmm. Denver's 92%, and then San Diego, 94%. So if you're going to kill somebody, do not do it in San Diego. <laughs> Go to Detroit. In the UK, the my country of residence, is a 92% good. overall for that's um, England and Wales, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. That's really good. Well, much like I think uh, if you were a profiler, you'd say this guy is doing very serial killer behavior, right? Because mm-hmm. he's thinking if I want to feel something die, I should start with an animal. And yeah. he's got uh, a clerk that has like a, a bird, right? Yeah, it's a little uh, finch. He takes it out of the cage when his clerk's out to lunch or whatever, and he's just squeezing it. He's getting a thrill out of feeling his little heart beat faster every time he squeezes it. Yeah. But it's the blood that he really wants to see. Then I took scissors, short nail scissors, and I cut its throat with three slits quite gently. It opened its bill, it struggled to escape me, but I held it, oh, I held it. I could have held a mad dog, and I saw the blood trickle. And then I did as assassins do, real ones. I washed the scissors, I washed my hands, I sprinkled water and took the body, the corpse, to the garden to hide it. I buried it under a strawberry plant. It will never be found. Every day I shall eat a strawberry from that plant. (laughs) How one can enjoy life when one knows how. And then he's really happy because the servant doesn't know. No, he thinks the bird just escaped the cage and flew away. And yeah. and uh, he gets away with it. And he's delighted that he's not even a suspect in what, what he did. Ugh. Now, on August 30th, things escalate. And he goes out walking. And there's uh, this little boy that's out walking in the woods as well. And he realizes that the little boy is on his own. The wish to kill him intoxicated me like wine. I approached him quite softly, persuaded that he was going to run away, and suddenly I seized him by the throat. He looked at me with terror in his eyes. Such eyes. He held my wrists in his little hands, and his body writhed like a feather over the fire. (laughs) Then he moved no more. I threw the body in the ditch and some weeds on top of it. I returned home and dined well. What a little thing it was. In the evening, I was 
very gay, light, rejuvenated. I, I passed the evening at the prefects. They found me witty. But I have not seen blood. I am tranquil. So then he's following the case, of course, to see you know, what's yeah. going to happen. They pick up some hobos, but then they're released as well because they don't have anything on them. So they just basically think that some traveling vagabond must have done it. And, and that's it. Nobody gets busted for he doesn't. He's not even on the radar that he did yeah. it. So he's delighted that he's able to do this. On the 20th, he finds a fisherman under a tree who's sleeping. Nobody's around. So he finds a hoe, comes back and just smashes the guy's head in and kills him. People find the body and they blame the man's nephew. They think that... Uh, that he did it because he was supposed to get inheritance from the man. And oh, this part is just, it, it kills. He says that they kind of browbeat him into almost admitting to confessing. Fortunately, the, tr- the, the case gets handed to his court. So he's the one presiding over, over it. So he uh, sends him to the guillotine to get his head chopped off because he convicts him. Uh, yeah. and gets him. He says how fine it is to see a man's head cut off. And he just delights in the, the murder of him. Now I shall wait. I can wait. It would be, it takes such a little thing to let myself be caught. So he's going to be very careful, even though he's delighted in coming close here. The manuscript contained yet other pages, but without relating any new crime. Alienist physicians to whom the awful story has been submitted declare that there are in the world many undiscovered madmen, as adroit and as much to be feared as this monstrous lunatic. That's the end of the story. That's the end. That implication at the end is the really chilling part, as I'd already said. These people are just kind of walking among us. Sure. And often in positions of power that can allow them to get away with these things. Yeah. I think that's probably true. There was that that, uh, psychopath book. Did you happen to read any of that? Uh, no. The psychopath test. It just talks about people being psychopaths and how, uh, I think there was a This American Life about it, or was it Radio Mm -hmm. Lab? that they also talked about the book. He just poses that most people in positions of power are psychopaths to a degree. Those people do well because they're able to, their emotions aren't a factor in things. And so they're they're yeah. they're able to really get what they want without feeling guilt. Now they're not necessarily murderers. Right. And just because you're a psychopath doesn't necessarily mean you're a murderer, but that they're the kind of people that don't empathize with people. They don't feel other people's feelings. They understand other people's feelings and why yeah. people do what they do, but they don't feel it. Like most most people are impact if you see somebody hurt, you feel it to a degree. These people don't. And those are the people that rise into positions of power. And if you did the psychopath test on these CEOs and these politicians, they all do very well slash poorly on it where they all <laughs> they, they all factor very high on the psychopath test wow this is a very stupid thing to say but tom cruise <laughs> i always kind of felt that guy's got that sociopath vibe and then when he was in that movie collateral where he was actually playing a sociopath i was like this yeah. is the most perfect casting ever <laughs> all right yeah i agree i completely and see it man magnolia as well yeah, He's, yeah he plays that kind of a, a, a sociopath guy who's a motivational speaker yeah, forget at the Mountains of Madness. They need to cast him in this de Maupassant story. <laughs> That's a good role for Cruz. And if you watch him in interviews, he seems a little off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, poor Tom Cruise. Everybody talks crap about him. But I do think, yeah, I do think he's a murderer. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I've never said he murdered anybody. Oh, I, I don't think, think he's murdering. I don't think he's murdered anyone. I think he's probably a really right. nice guy. I just don't think he really empathizes with people. 
especially the people he's murdered. So uh, <laughs> next week, we're going to continue on the, with December. We're going to continue on with this uh, December's guest, Guy de Maupassant. Uh, I say next week, let's do the Spectre All right. or the Apparition. Lovecraft calls it the Spectre. I've found it online mostly as the Apparition, but I just like the word Spectre, so... That sounds good to me. Uh, but this one I really enjoyed. I mean, it was if not from a... <laughs> it's hard to, hard to say it that way. I got enjoyment out of the story because it engaged me in a lot of levels. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot to think about in a very short story. But I, it did upset me when it was done, I felt. I felt bad. I felt bad, yeah. I know that some of these uh, stories we have coming up are a lot more in the weird fiction tradition, so uh, less bloody. So I want to say thank you to Andrew for doing a great reading and sounding himself like a wonderful psychopath, even though we know him to be a loving and caring guy. Absolutely. Played it well. Thank you, Andrew. And I want to thank uh, my co-host, Chad Pfeiffer, for joining me on this episode today. Well, I'd like to thank you, Chris, for uh, for chatting with me about this and for gathering all those stats and having such good information for the show. <laughs> I'm really into the moon. <laughs> You'll never talk me out of my moon road. It's a bad idea, Pfeiffer. It's a bad idea. Well, we'll talk about it more next week. With that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs>